did it there to you. On purpose. Did it on purpose. <laughs> I have a uh, rhetorical question I would like to ask. And that it came about. Uh, some guy wrote me a note here saying, he said, Shepard, he said, uh, uh, you know, everybody's been influenced by things in their life. He said, uh, who uh, and what influenced you? And this guy's writing a paper or something. And uh, it's very embarrassing to have to, you know, to answer a question like that. What do you say, you know? I mean, you know, uh, if you want to be really pompous, if you ask a guy like, uh, I'm sure if you ask a guy like Mailer, he'd come up and tell, you know, well, I was influenced by our Herman Melville and Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre. But the, I, I, I really don't know how to handle this. And uh, I have to approach it uh, very delicately here tonight. And, uh, well, here, I'll, I'll uh, I, I might as well tell you and what uh, I was influenced very strongly. Uh, Mac, will you please, one moment here, please. Uh, I, I'll have to have a little blast on the flugelhorn there, please. Just bring it up big. Hit it big, please. <laughs> Thank you. That's all. That's all. Just enough. A soup sound of, of uh, blasting, and that's enough. You, you, just a little bit there. Well, I was, you know, I, I was, this is something I've been thinking about for a long time in a very funny way. Uh, do you know, I, I, I think I'm not alone in this. I think large numbers of guys were influenced by what, I don't think we were as influenced by, I'm talking about a whole generation. And not only, no, you don't have to worry about it. Keep it off. We're not even going to use it again, Max, so don't worry about it, okay? Uh, I think we were influenced uh, almost everybody walking around today was influenced far more by something other than the movies. I don't think people were influenced by the movies very much. And, you know, all kinds of movie critics are constantly writing about a whole generation grew up believing in the Carol Lombard, believing in... I don't buy this jazz. I, t I have to take issue. I just don't think... First of all, I, I, the reason I don't believe this is because I don't think that the average family, uh, before television, went to the movies much more than maybe once a month, if that. I'd say maybe once a month. That's about it. And maybe, how long is a movie? Ninety minutes. Give or take a few minutes. And to believe that, <laughs> that a whole generation of people were influenced by 90 minutes once a month, man, there's something wrong. Something wrong. That is absolutely a great fallacy. Now, uh, the reason I think that critics often write this way, I mean, people like Pauline Kael and that, who are great film critics, is because they themselves were hung on movies as a kid. They might have been the one kid in the, you know, in the school that did nothing but go to movies all the time. And there always were those kids. But the great body of people, kids, just didn't go to that many movies. I had other things to do. And so when Saturday afternoon came, and there were always a large number of little skinny kids with thick glasses who trooped off to go to the movies, I trooped off to play second base. <laughs> along with thousands of other kids. So I just don't buy this thing that people were influenced, except certainly there was a minority that was. But I don't believe that many people 
out of a hundred, certainly way less than the majority, were actually influenced by movies. I'll just lay that out for what it's worth. I don't believe it. Just simply don't believe it. It has not been proven to me that this is so. And uh, to read to read movie critics, and to even see certain movies like uh, uh, The Last Picture Show, for example, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, you know, you, you'd, you'd, uh, you'd believe that people all of their lives sat around and looked at movies when they were growing up. I, they didn't do that. In my experience, I don't find this true. Now, my experience may be different from yours, but I simply have not, I have yet to be convinced that a, a, you know, millions of people were influenced by the movies. I think they might have been occasionally amused by the movies. They might have been, uh, they might have been uh, even quite possibly a few styles. People would imitate a style or something. But to believe that there was an influence philosophically in any other way, I simply don't buy it. And anybody that sits around and writes a play about how he fantasizes, you know, writing fantasies about how he would like to be Humphrey Bogart and so on, is either very sick or is writing something that's just simply commercial. Because I don't believe it was true. Simply don't. And, uh, and I... I uh, I, I, I was hit by that the other day because and then you're going to ask me, well, you know, people say, well, what were you influenced by? I was not influenced by the movies. You know what I suggest that more people were influenced by? Because, see, an influence is something that is a steady, a steady force, a regular force that is applied to you. Now, you're not going to be influenced on some, by something that you only see very rarely. And a movie... Uh, you know, a movie was a thing that was quite unusual, I suspect, in most people's. And not because they didn't have the money. Don't assume that we're talking about poor people who couldn't afford movies. That, incidentally, is what a critic would believe. That if they had the money, they would have gone to the movies. Not so. Maybe you and your particular hang-up would have done that. But I don't believe that the average person uh, living in average community surroundings was as hung on movies as, say, the average writer, serious writer today, about the movies would, led, would lead you to believe. And nobody really questions this. They simply, it's one of those great truisms. Yes, a whole generation were influenced by the movies. And uh, the great, uh, oh, come on. I don't buy this. <laughs> In fact, I, I'll bet, I'll bet during my growing up time, I'll bet that, that uh, quite possibly... I would say from the time I was 10 to probably the time I was 15, I doubt whether I probably saw 25 movies in that whole time. Maybe even less. I've never even really thought about how many, but I'd, it's not because of money. It was because I had other things to do. There was a certain kind of person that sits around on his behind and watches uh, vicarious life. <laughs> And there's another kind who simply doesn't really get turned on by it particularly. You go to a movie, and uh, how many people were ever influenced by Tarzan, for crying out loud? Come on. Or took it seriously. And, uh, and I, I just simply wasn't. I, and I'm not trying to do a serious type show tonight. I'm just saying that, that I somebody should say this, uh, because it hasn't been said. And I, I keep reading these long, involved, convoluted essays on movies and the great importance that it played in the lives of people and I began to suspect that it played an importance in the life of the reviewer 
and maybe the specific family they came from. But I doubt whether this was the vast majority of people. Just simply, it has to be proven to me. And, and, and if they try to prove it, how many admissions, let's say how many admissions to movie houses were in one year, let's say in one particular year, I say that it would be interesting to know how many of those were repeaters. In other words, if a person is hung on a movie, he's going to go all the time. And, uh, and, and so they'll say, look, ten admissions in one month. Uh, obviously, ten people were hung on the movies. No, that was nine of them was the same guy. <laughs> yeah, if you're hung on this stuff, you're hung, you know. But what do you think? What, what would you say really influenced you? Well, all right, I, I have a feeling that more people were influenced by comic strips. This is where, because it was daily. Comic strips was a daily form of entertainment. Now, what is an influence? Well, I'll tell you what an influence is. I think a lot of writers today, and I suspect even including me, a lot of writers were influenced by comic strip continuity. I think, say, Tom Wolfe, uh, the contemporary Tom Wolfe, you know, Zowie, Wham, Pow. Uh, this is not movie talk. This is comic strip writing. Pow, wham, zowie. And uh, I suspect that a lot of the a lot of the plays were influenced. The play contemporary, so the theater of the absurd, for example, is far more a theater of the comic strip than it is a theater of old movies. Uh, just uh, the blackout, the the uh, the pow punchline. The, uh, the caricature, the people who absolutely are not real people. I mean, nobody could, nobody could actually say that any, any character that Jules Pfeiffer, for example, has ever written into a play bears any re- uh, resemblance to a real person. They're caricatures, comic strip caricatures at that. And so I think that the comic strip really has influences a great deal. And, uh, and I think even, even more sexually and morality-wise, they've influences. You know, uh, would, who would you say reads comic strips to begin with? Well, that's an interesting point. Uh, I, there's a piece just came on. I'm going to read something to you. that uh, and, and what comic strips specifically influenced you? Now, a lot of people... With you know the comic strips, I was not influenced at all. I mean, as a kid, I used to read the comic strips. We got papers, and and of course, it varies from country to, from section of the country to section of the country. A lot of comic strips appeared in certain parts of the country that never appeared out here. For example, when I first came to New York, uh, Charlie Brown, the Peanuts, the contemporary Peanuts, was very big in the Midwest, and nobody had ever heard of it out here. The paper, in other words, no paper locally here simply carried it. That's all. So the people out here didn't hear about it until it was a well-established thing in certain other parts of the country. But uh, 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 now I want to read this piece because I agree a, a lot with what this this writer says. A, a writer named Patricia McCormick who writes for UPI, and this appeared in the Sunday Bulletin in Philadelphia, and uh, it says Dateline, New York. It says, in those families featured in the American funnies, the mother and wife always comes out the supreme power. Now, <laughs> as in the beginning of comics. In other words, the, the mother is always the big thing in, in the comic strips. No one dares suggest that's why they're called comics or jokes or funnies. 
But the fact is that the world of comics is a total matriarchy. Do you ever think about that? Listen, the wife and or mother has been the undisputed heavyweight since comics, an American art form, first made the scene in a big way. How many years ago do you think they first made it? Seventy-five years ago. Maurice Horn, who verified that observation in an interview, designed the current, quote, 75 years of comics exhibit at the New York Cultural Center in association with Fairleigh Dickinson University. The exhibit, featuring more than 300 examples of comic art, runs uh, for till November 7th. It is drawing like, well, the comics. A lot of people, this, I'm quoting this, a lot of people. A medium which reaches daily into almost every home in the Western world. I take real issue with people who believe that the movies influence people. I think it's comics, far more in a subtle way. Horn, an authority on funnies, a neglected American art form. I don't believe that either. I don't think they're neglected. <laughs> if anything, I think people read them too much. A neglected art form. Also is the author of 75 years of comics and so forth. Through the years of the funny papers, there have been slight changes in the role of wife and mother, but ever so slight, according to Horn. And we quote Horn here. It is clear-cut in Maggie and Jiggs that Jiggs is hand-pecked, he said. If you remember Maggie and Jiggs. But in a more modern comic strip, High and Lois, though, High is hand-pecked also but far more subtly, not as poorly off as Jiggs, but subtly. When Lois does her nagging in the strip, she appears to use contemporary preachments on marital happiness, apparently using more psychology and fewer flung vases to convince High that he is in the doghouse and he better get in line. Now, I'd like to point out that even holds true in, in uh, Peanuts, the Charlie Schultz column, you know, uh, Schroeder. After all, Lois... You know who Lois is? What, isn't that her name, Lois? Or what's her name, Lois? The loudmouth girl. Is it Lois? She completely henpecks everybody. Yeah, that's right. And and in other words, he is he is falling. It's right in the the mainstream. A lot of people who think uh, Schroeder and Lois, uh, you know, and all that crowd are really unusual and new. And he's he's right in the mainstream of the comics. The hero is almost always a loser. And has been for years. Well, look at Bumstead. Bumstead's always getting yelled at by the boss. <laughs> he gets yelled at by his wife. He even gets yelled at by the mailman. And and so he's a loser. He's really grown up. He's grown up uh, Charlie Brown is what he is. This is my own observation. But they, they fit right into a, a category all the time. And uh, we go on with the article. It says, what is interesting about the matriarchal family lifestyle perpetrated by the comics is that most comic strips are imaginations of the male they're products of the male imagination almost all comics are written by men with the possible exception there's a few uh, Brenda Starr for example is uh, written by a woman anyway he says the quote the fact that they cast the family as a matriarchy most often doesn't necessarily mean that their family lifestyle is the same Horn said it's just the style they endorsed for the comics it's funnier, after all, this is a quote, to have a guy picked on by his wife than it is to have a guy nag his wife. And then he goes on to say, in fact, there seems to be an unwritten rule that the wife in a comic strip doesn't get harmed physically no matter how furious a marital spat becomes. Jiggs, for example, has suffered from Maggie's hands, such things as black eyes, lumps on the head, and other injuries, 
but never has he even so much as raised a hand to Maggie, although he has outwitted her on rare occasions. Another famous comic couple, Blondie and Dagwood, didn't start out married in the comics. Quote, Blondie was a gold digger, and Dagwood was a rich young man, Horn said. Readership in the strip just didn't go. The strip was uh, said wasn't happening. And so Dagwood and Blondie got married. He became a henpecked husband, and readership went up instantly, which is significant. Maybe the cartoonists giving the readers henpecked husbands are simply showing American women the way they would prefer their role in marriage. And here's an interesting point. Horn said that many more women, far more women than men, read comics and are steady readers of comic strips. Did you know that? I I don't know where he gets that figure, but that's what he says. It says, children, since the beginning of American comics, have always tried to outwit their parents and have been almost always successful. The Katzenjammers are the most famous of all, Horn said. There's a kind of morality about the strip as the kids go about their trickery. Quote, the morality is that you can do what you please for fun, but you do so at your own peril, Horn said. The kids get spanked. In a more recently conceived pesky kid strip, Dennis the Menace, the punishment for wrongdoing is less violent. Dennis is always sitting in a corner or gets sent to bed without dinner or suffers less violent chastisement. In other comics of relatively recent origin, there are two clashing moralities about behavior. That, evidenced by Walt Kelly in Pogo, and that, perpetuated by Charles Schultz in Peanuts. They both are opposing each other. And it's interesting that Pogo, as a strip, has gone down recently in, you know, popularity. Very few people quote Pogo any longer. And now they're all talking about Charles. So maybe one morality is superseding another. This is my own comment. Pogo, Horn said, represents the new morality, a humanistic philosophy, reason and rationalization. It is a morality of let reason prevail. Well, now... See, I suspect that Mr. Horn is not really out on the streets much. Sounds like a uh, like a <laughs> he sounds like a uh, he sounds like an academician. Whereas if, if if he spent much time in in people you know people who who are really forming the attitudes of today, reason is a bad word. Gut feeling is a word now today. In other words, passion is much more important today than reason was. I think Pogo made it big back in the late fifties and early sixties. When people were talking about such things as sane, you know, sane nuclear policy, everything had to do with reason. Now we're in another time when there are all kinds of groups that are related to violence, there are groups related to passion, there are groups related to, I don't care what it means, I will let my life go on the line, but they must free blah blah, free the, uh, free the Indianapolis 500 immediately, and up goes the sign. And uh, by the way, you like that one, free the Indianapolis 500. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, Schultz in, in Peanuts represents another extreme, somewhat biblical, according to belief. It is a morality of faith. See, faith doesn't have much to do with reason. <laughs> it is a morality of faith. Uh, Charlie Brown, for example, keeps trying to fly his kite no matter what the logic of past failure indicates is in store for him. In other words, he continues to do this in spite of the fact that he knows he can't fly the kite. Which in a sense says that that uh, uh, he's going in the face of reason. One pleads for reason, the other says, uh, forget reason, just keep, 
doing this thing. Reason has nothing to do with life. And I suspect that morality is taking over. And I wonder how much the, 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 the Peanuts cartoon has had to do with the cult of loser among kids today. I, I find a lot of kids really are very pleased at the fact that they failed or, or that they, they were, you know, that, that somehow they're, they're losers. I've, I've, I've seen this in a lot of schools, and I, and I just, just hear it. You know, I hear it talk, and the, the guy will say with a great deal of pride uh, something to the effect of, well, <laughs> after all, you know, uh, I, you know, I sure I've flunked, Matt, I, I flunked uh, Trig. <laughs> it's great, you know. Somehow that shows he's a more honest man if you flunk Trig or something, a better man. But the, the idea of loser is a big, important thing. And, I, and nobody points this out about Schultz. They always talk about him as biblical. I don't see any biblical parallels in uh, his work. Because after all, Christ was anything but a loser. Uh, <laughs> he was much more than that. Anyway, some, contempor some contemporary comics preach, as pioneer ones did. The most famous of all is Orphan Annie. Of course, preaching all the time. The contemporary ones taking on big issues include Rex Morgan, M.D., in recent episodes, the Morgan Strip has handled nervous breakdowns, alcoholism, and a strange case of brain damage interfering with speech and recall functions, and so forth. But the, the one he doesn't mention here, which is constantly preaching, is Mary Worth. Mary Worth always shows up suddenly, and she explains to whoever the heroine is of the time, if you've seen that strip at all, ultimately... The, what the meaning of marriage is or what the meaning of morality is. You've seen that strip, constantly preaching. Now, I'm, I'm just curious if a person who, who never goes to any kind of, a, say, a, a church, he never, he never reads anything serious in his life. Uh, and, and every day, this person sits on the subway and reads Mary Worth and gets these continual little capsule lectures on the Hard work, after all. Mary Worth is always saying things like this. Hard work, after all, Barbara, is its own reward. A person who works hard, a person who is true to himself, this will be the person, ultimately, who will realize true happiness in life. And uh, Barbara's always looking very worried, looking down. And in the background, you see the villain saying, Curses, foiled again. You know, the, the guy named Steve. There's always somebody who's trying to get to these <laughs> girls in this strip. And they're always bad guys who want to take them off to a commune or something like that. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm just curious how many people have been influenced by comic strips as opposed to, uh, to uh, movies. And I'm making a prediction right now, and uh, this pompous-type prediction, but uh, I suspect that in three or four years, somebody will stop, you know, they'll stop this business of uh, uh, talking about... Uh, the unappreciated art form. I think the comic strips are probably one of the few appreciated art forms in America. The average American really looks at the comic strips more than anything else. So how can you call it an unappreciated art form? <laughs> what they really mean by that is there haven't been any pompous essays written about it. Appreciated, yes. Uh, lauded, no. I suspect that may be it. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I suspect within a few years, somebody's going to come out with a real long, involved essay about the effect upon uh, a whole generation of people, the morality of uh, the comic strips has had on, on people. And then, of course, that's going to be a big cause celeb. It'll appear in New York Magazine and Gloria Stein, and we'll uh, subscribe to it, and then it'll be official. But uh, at this point now, we continue to believe that movies did it. 
What was what was the one strip? Uh, would you guess what strip? Uh, as a kid, the one that I read most, judging from my work, and that influenced me. I I was I really wasn't a Popeye fan. I wasn't a fan of uh, of uh, particularly uh, any any of these. Uh, I never looked never looked at Orphan Annie or any any of those those things. I, I I didn't. For some reason or other, they didn't do anything to me. And for a while, I went through my. Uh, my uh, Mandrake the Magician phase, but that was very brief. Who do you think I always looked at? Did you ever hear of Smokey Stover? You never heard of Smoke? Okay. <laughs> no way to talk to you then. You never heard of Smokey Stover? Well, maybe you called it something else here. That could be. I don't think that strip was old. That strip only, I, I suspect, only disappeared about three or four years ago. That's, that's not a new... Smokey Stover. Well, did you ever hear... What, what was always said in the strip, Smokey Stover? Did you ever hear the expression, Notary Sojak? You have, or are you just saying that? Well, that, that was always said. In, in every strip, there was a little guy holding up a sign that said, Notary Sojak. Smokey Stover was this fireman. <laughs> and uh, it was a completely maniacal strip. Had absolutely no... Re well, among other things, above it was another strip that uh, was written by, drawn by the same guy. And there was a character in the strip that always walked around with a coal scuttle over his head. And he was always hitchhiking. What did he say all the time? Nob schmaz kapop. <laughs> That's all he said. Nob schmaz kapop. He was hitchhiking. Complete absurdity. And and uh, and I, I remember one time it was explained in the strip. One of the characters asked the other character, "Well, how come he always wears that coal scuttle over his head?" And the other one says, "Well, he's he's prepared." He said, "What do you mean prepared for what?" He said, well, he figures you never can tell. The other guy says, what do you mean you never can tell? Never can tell what? What's he prepared for? He said, well, he figures you never know when you're going to get hit by a meteor. <laughs> there he stood <laughs> with a coal scuttle. And, and uh, I, I, to me, this, uh, for some reason or other, this, this hit my particular sense of humor. And I would have to say that among all the, the things that have influenced me, that probably influenced me as much as anything else reading that strip. I never missed it. And it was it had a curious, maniacal sense of a complete absurd sense of humor. Nothing to do with uh, with with preaching. It just was it was the it was it was almost like the the uh, I'd have to say almost the Samuel Beckett of comic strips. And probably that's why it never really caught on with a lot of people because most people prefer uh, the Arthur Miller of comic strips, preaching. <laughs> And uh, some strips just go on and on. Others just don't. Did you ever hear of a strip? Uh, there was another strip that that uh, got me for a while. I used to I used to flip. I was a little kid, and I used to sit there and laugh like mad. And it was a crazy strip, and uh, and nobody else has ever heard of it. Called Dave's Delicatessen. <laughs> it was a crazy strip, and I I never find anybody who ever heard of it before. It just briefly appeared, and I thought it was unbelievably funny, and then it disappeared. And uh, from that day on, of course, have, have you ever had the feeling that the stuff you really dig 
is doomed always to disappear quickly and the stuff you don't dig goes on and on my god I mean (laughs) I like I have never dug the Lucy show and it goes on and on like death and taxes Uh, the Danny Thomas on and on and on and on and on I suppose there are some viewers there must be but the the stuff you dig pow it's gone it's there five minutes it disappears quietly in the night nobody weeps about it but the notary Sojak, uh, notary Sojak, man, Smokey Stover. <laughs> then there was another. Of course, there was a few strips like that that had had a uh, had a like. I remember one like, reading a strip one time when I was a kid. One of the one of the strips that I, I for, for some reason or other I found irresistibly funny. Maybe because there were a couple of people in my family like this, and I could relate to this. Was Judge Hoople or Major Hoople? Or and Judge Puffle, depending on what what part of the country he was called different things. But I went through a period when I drove my mother absolutely out of her bird, and I still find myself occasionally doing it. You know, in moments of great stress. What is it that Major Hoople used to always do? Well, I'll tell you what he did. He would go <clears throat> brump calf calf. <laughs> he would preface every one of his great pronouncements with <clears throat> brump. Calf, calf, Ralph, and uh, he would make a great pronounce uh, pronounce some uh, some big thing he's got. Oh yes, that reminds me of the time, <clears throat> when I was in the Indian Army. Uh, that time, of course, I was leading a brigade of riflemen. <clears throat> calf, calf. That was before you were born, son. But I'll never forget. And uh, he had always this, these great stories. And somehow, for some reason or other, that 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 strip always flipped me out. And. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I, I suspect you can tell something about a person's mind and who he is and what he thinks and the way he uh, the way he operates by the strips he thinks are funny, the ones he digs. Now I, I, I'll be honest with you. I used to dig. Uh, I used to dig uh, a long time ago when his stuff first started. I dug Charles Schultz, but then. When he went into this long, involved, and, and became very cute. You see, there's a big difference between whimsy and cuteness. And he became very cutie pie. I suspect that the, that Charles Schultz today, Peanuts, is the is the greatest example we have today of continuing kitsch. Uh, <laughs> that's really cuteness, you know, the whole business of uh, uh, when, when Snoopy began to take over the strip. And uh, he went through the whole thing of being the... Being the flyer, or being the hockey player, I find this. Uh, I find this. Uh, you know, this this is kitschy. Very, uh, very. I just didn't buy it. There was a certain curious, stark simplicity about the early strip. Now, if you've ever seen early, very early Charles Schultz stuff, there's a curious, stark simplicity about it. Even his drawing wasn't as uh, kitschy and as cutie pie as it is now. The drawing changed. And I'm not one of these people who always say, you know, the early stuff was great. But the very early Schultz was very interesting. And and he hadn't gotten into all this. Uh, uh, in other words, it would have been conceivable in the early strip that Charlie Brown could conceivably have won a ball game. He was always, When he lost, he always barely lost. He lost the way you do in life. Well, when if, if you're doing kitsch, you lose 149 to nothing. And incidentally, nobody ever has lost a ball game that I know of, 149 to nothing. And that's the difference between kitsch and art. 
In Kitsch, it's 149 to nothing. In Art, he loses the last minute always, uh, always, uh, by turning his head at the wrong time and looking at somebody in the grandstand. He loses two to one just when it looked like he was about to win. The Achilles heel. That's Art. Kitsch is 149 to nothing, invariably. And the, and they with a dog playing the outfield and complaining that his glove isn't right today. Uh, that's Kitsch. <laughs> And so uh, the the, uh, the the whole I think the whole thing of, of uh, comics has really influenced now I, I uh, influenced all of us whether we know it or not even our language even our language the pow pow is right out of the comic strips a wild that's out of the comic strips uh, things like zap well you know that's the comic strip who used the word zap first. You know, to really zap somebody. Where did that come from? You've heard the expression zap him? He really got zapped. This is a clear example of that kind of uh, influence of language. You mean you don't, you've never heard the expression a zap gun? Well, who was that? Who had a zap gun? Well, that was Buck Rogers. Buck Rogers had a thing called a zap gun. He, he called it that. It was like slang, his own slang, say. And what he really, what he was really using was a thing called a, uh, a something, oh, I had a long name, like a modular atomic disintegrator gun. It was a disintegrator gun. But he also says, give me the zap, and the gun would go zap. And so the, the term zap came out of that comic strip as a term meaning somebody got zapped. That meant he got disintegrated by the zap gun. And so all over, everywhere you go, you see these little tiny influences and, and hardly anybody recognizes them. I don't remember many phrases that people picked up out of movies. Really, I don't, maybe something like, my little chickadee. That's about the extent of it. Or, uh, Judy, Judy, Judy. <laughs> uh, something like that. Uh, but but uh, our language is laced with comic stripisms now. The word Jeep, which is still part of our language. Where did Jeep come from? Popeye. Goon. Who was Alice the Goon? You know, you hear labor goons? Goon. The word goon came out of Popeye, too. Uh, and dozens and dozens of terms. I mean, so many of them that you could probably sit down and, and take uh, any average writer who's writing a novel and pick out, out of that average novel, probably 35 words that originated and became really popular phrases, attitudes in comic strips. Zap. Pow, wham, comic strip, pure and simple. Uh, for example, I think the comic strips were the first people to actually see humor in uh, office life. Tilly the Toiler, Wally Wimple, <laughs> the whole scene, Smitty, uh, in fact, uh, I, I think attitudes, uh, more than just specific words and phrases, I, 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 I would venture to say that more people got science fiction out of comics than ever out of science fiction novels. The whole concept of, of um, moon exploration, the whole thing. All right, uh, here, let's take, uh, take another one. Uh, what, what, uh, what continent did... Uh, Usually, did a man named Ming control? Ming, better known as Ming the Merciless. He was really a reincarnation of Dr. Fu Manchu. 
Ming the Merciless. What was his continent? You mean you don't know what continent he was from? You mean you've never heard of Mongo? And, uh, and, <laughs> and, and why was Flash Gordon sent to Mongo? What kind of, what kind of historian are you? You mean you don't know these things? Ming the Merciless? What was the name of, uh, what was the name of, uh, Ming's arch henchman? Well, what was the name of Flash Gordon's chick? You're talking to a man of great knowledge here tonight. Anybody who knows uh, who Dave's delicatessen, and who also knows, <laughs> and who also knows, uh, well, I'll tell you, uh, in the very early uh, Charles Schultz script, and then, by the way, he does Peanuts, in case you don't know who Charles Schultz is. Peanuts referred to just little kids. Peanuts. You know, peanuts. Uh, somebody played the piano before the current kid played the piano. Their character suddenly shifted for some reason. Who was it? That's contemporary history. See, you thought you knew everything, didn't you? Uh-huh. But a girl who was very important in that strip long before Lois came on the scene. But the, but the point is, she didn't make it because she was a victim just like all the rest of the kids. Only when a very mean girl came on the scene and henpecked poor little, uh, poor little uh, Charlie Brown, did she become popular and did the script become popular? Aha! Meanings everywhere. Yes, Bella Abzug's influence is all over the world. Yeah.